I hope that you'll continue to pray as we go into the Word of God this morning. I uh, have something a little unusual that's been on my mind for some of this week, and I pray that it is of the Lord, and if it's not, I hope I have the wisdom to, to step aside and we just return into worship and singing hymn. But um, more and more, we find in society and in things we see on the internet and in commercials and in conversations, the misapplication of the Word of God. And as a matter of fact, we find many statements that people say, and they say, well, that's in the Bible. And it's actually not. Or it is in the Bible kind of like that, but it's really not the Word of God. And so this morning, I would like to take a few moments for just a handful of these. I'm not going to address all of them. It is a pretty long list of things that people say are in the Word of God and for various reasons try to justify some things. But as I was meditating on these various things I've got last night, some of you might recall several years ago there was a, a, a television commercial for the spaghetti sauce brand Prego. And somebody would say, are there uh, peppers in it? He said, it's in there. And it's in there, it's in there. And that was the, the saying for Prego spaghetti sauce. Well, my topic for you this morning is it's not in there. Um, these things are not in the Word of God. And if they are, they are misapplied. And so some of these are a little bit lighter in nature and should be comforting to us to know the right reason. Some of these are much deeper. And how they're being applied actually deceives and hurts the people of God. But either one, whether it's something that's simple or something that's much deeper, if we are misapplying the Word of God, then we've got a drastic mistake. We don't want to be off just a little bit. We certainly don't want to add to the Word of God. There's warning in Revelation about that. And we don't want to take away from the Word of God. There's warning in Revelation about that. And so what we want is what's in the Word of God. And so with the Lord's help, I want to look at some of these statements that are pretty common out there in the world. I, I kind of chose the ones that are the most used or the most abused. Go ahead and be turning over to Philippians chapter 4. The first one that I want to look at this morning is everything in moderation. People say that. That's, that's how you're supposed to live your life. Everything in moderation. Really? A little bit of crack cocaine's okay. We do realize that the problem that we're having with heroin and other things in the world today is what they're cutting this thing with is fentanyl. And if you took the tip of a pencil and put that much fentanyl on there, that's enough to kill a human being. Everything in moderation? No. Mainly, we know why that's there. Is that's made as an excuse for doing whatever we want to do. But let's look at the Word of God and see what it actually says. And they say, well, it's in the Bible. Paul wrote it in Philippians. No, he didn't. Here's what he wrote. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5 says, Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. That doesn't sound anything like what is said all the time. Everything in moderation. By the way, that's more along the lines, Jonah can probably back me up on this. That's in Aristotle's ethics. He had that idea of being moderate in all things, and it was actually a couple of Roman guys that said it. It never was in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does this mean? Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. We really need to not leave off that last part because that tells us what this is talking about. Moderation. Let your moderation be known to whom? All men, not just Christians. Moderation means patience, kindness, gentleness. This is telling us that even outside of the church, we should be kind and gentle and have a moderate personality toward everyone we meet. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. We are representing the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to act like it 
all the time. We shouldn't have a behavior for church and a behavior outside of church. That's exactly the opposite of everything in moderation, isn't it? <laughs> and so that's one of the simple ones that we look at here. But if we are to let our moderation be known unto all men, that means we are to live a life that we don't react differently in different situations depending upon who the people are that are around us because the Lord's at hand with us here in church. He's at hand with us out there in the world. If our religion does not extend beyond those doors right there, then we really have nothing. This is the place where we come and learn what we're supposed to do out there. I've always thought of church this way, and I don't mean this in a light manner. Church is the pep rally for the, for the war. <laughs> this is where we come to get our marching orders. This is where we come to get encouragement. This is where we come to get fired up to go out there and to win the battle. If the battle's in here, then whew, we're losing. <laughs> but if it's peace in here, moderation, then it should be that we can be that way out there as well. The other one that is probably the most popular, except for everything in moderation, is also found in this chapter. And that is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I remember when I was a boy, when this became very, very popular, when the local gyms wanted to sell a bunch of memberships to work out with weights, they produced these T-shirts that had these muscle-bound guys, and on there it said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. It didn't matter how long I pumped iron. I never got big like that. I was shaped just like Jonah, and it never changed. <laughs> That's not what that text means. If that text means what they were promoting at that time, which they would have um, well, they, the first school that I taught in, they actually had one of these guys come in to uh, try to motivate students to follow the Lord. And so he, was, he took pieces of rebar and was bending them into circles. And he's a big fella. And I got a hold of one of those. The secret is how long the piece of rebar was. Because it's pretty difficult to bend rebar, but if a weak old choir director like me can unbend it, it's a pretty long piece of rebar. It's a deceptive tool because if it's true that we can truly do all things through Christ, if we just ask Christ for it, then we'd all be rich, wouldn't we? We would all be the strongest people on earth. I don't know about you, but I would be Superman. I want to fly. I don't like getting in an airplane. I, don't re I really don't like trying to make the drive back to Texas to see our families. That's a long trip. It takes all day. I would love to. Just, I'm flying. Be over there in about 10 seconds. I can't do that through Christ which strengthened me. So all things can't mean all things. What people don't want is the context of this. 1 Corinthians, excuse me, Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Paul is talking about his experience in traveling and preaching the gospel. In verse 11, he says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be, what's that next word? Content. Look at my face. That's not content. That's tolerating somewhat. Content, Paul is saying, is a state of peace, the moderation that he just spoke of before. He says, I know both how to be abased, that's very low, and I know how to abound, that's very high. He says, I know how to be the servant, I know how to be the leader. I know how to be the one that nobody knows, I know how to be the one that everybody knows. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul says, I am instructed in these things. What does that mean? That our circumstances of life do not necessarily show whether God is blessing us or not. If our personal material wealth is the signal 
of the blessing of God in our lives, then the Apostle Paul was the least blessed. Would anybody agree with that statement? No. Paul says, I have learned that it's not the outwork of circumstances. It's not whether I have enough to eat or whether I'm hungry. It's not whether I am rich or whether I am poor. These are just circumstances of life. And so I have learned, I have been instructed to be content that Christ is enough for me. Boy, that's a lesson that takes a long time for a lot of people to learn, and it's something that pops back in our minds even as we get older, isn't it, Brother Jeff? Think, if I just get this, then everything will be okay. Really? Whether we have it or not, we should have contentment in our lives. People say, well, Brian, that's awfully hard to do. Yeah, it is. You know what? It's impossible to have that contentment if you try to do it alone. If you just say, I'm going to be content. <laughs> Good luck with that. Now we have our text. Paul has said that I have learned whatever state I am to be content. I can be the most popular. I can be the one that everybody beats up. I can be the leader. I can be the follower. I can be rich. I can be poor. I can be hungry. I can be full. I can do all these things. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. That's what he means. I can be content in every situation of life. We don't just need Christ for eternal salvation. We need Christ right now. We certainly need an assurance of our eternal salvation. But folks, you know where that's found? In contentment now. Because if we're not content now, then we might be a little worried about the future. But if we find contentment now, then we're resting assured that Christ finished the work. And that gives us that great hope and assurance. So let's, just in that one chapter, we get two grossly abused verses of Scripture and both of them teach something that probably those that are promoting this other idea don't really want us to know. You know, we live in another dark ages. When I was a child, I thought the dark ages meant nobody had electricity. I was a child. It took me a few years to find out electricity wasn't invented until a long time after the dark ages. And I, then I thought, well, the dark ages meant that there was a plague. Well, there might have been. Then I thought the Dark Ages meant there was a lot of wars that were going on. Well, there were. But the reason in, Amer in human history there was a time called the Dark Ages is because the Word of God was hidden from the common people. They would not allow it to be translated into a language that they can read. So, Brother Bryce, we've got the Bible. Yeah, but we're in the Dark Ages of our own choice. We want memes. We want a single picture to tell us everything we need to know about God. Can I tell you something about that? If everything you need to know about God can fit on one little bitty thing, that's not a God worth worshiping. But John tells us that there's not enough ink of all the ocean. There's not enough space of all the heavens to write the glories of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We need the Word of God. And so we need to take, and I've taught you all this before, and I believe this myself. Everything that we hear out there, especially those things claiming to be Christianity or claiming to be from the Word of God, we need to put them on trial. We need to go find them in the Bible, which means we've got to read the things around it. Read the whole epistle. Philippians is not that long. Read Paul's whole point in it. And so, Brother Bryce, sometimes it's a little difficult to understand. I don't disagree. That's what a pastor's for. <laughs> and if I don't know the answer, and you've asked me, I guarantee you I'm going to say, I don't know, but let's try to find out. That's what this place is for, is to explore these things and find the truth of who God is. I'm going to move along. 
Turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Y'all know what I'm going to do on this one. Money is the root of all evil. Money is the root of all evil. Okay, let's don't read the text yet. Y'all know where I'm going. It's 1 Timothy 6.10. Don't read it yet. Let's just go with the rest of the Bible before we even see what Paul says here. If money is the root of all evil, then we've got to throw out commandment number eight, thou shalt not steal. Because thou shalt not steal, God is saying it's okay to own things. The reason that I'm mentioning this one, and I know this one sounds like a joke, but my children's generation has this communist and socialist idea that ownership of property is immoral. Folks, God decides what is right and what is wrong. And if in the Big Ten there is thou shalt not steal at number eight and thou shalt not covet at number ten, God is saying people own things and I ain't got a problem with it. <laughs> All right? You cannot be a Christian to promote the idea of, uh, of, that you can't have personal property. So we got the Ten Commandments. Anybody ever read Deuteronomy? How about Leviticus? Do you know how many statements are in those two books? I don't know. I don't know how many there are. I didn't count them. But how many statements there are in there? There's a good portion of both of those books on how to deal with personal property. And if you hurt your neighbor's animal, what you're supposed to do to replace it. And if you kill your neighbor's animal, what the payment is. God would not have spent that much time on things if ownership of things was the root of all evil. Which, really, that's what's behind the idea of money is the root of all evil. Let me tell you something. Okay, so we've got Ten Commandments. We've got all the Old Testament. <clears throat> we have what? At least half to two-thirds of Jesus' ministry he teaches on money. If it was the root of all evil, I think Jesus would have told us right there. And he doesn't. But he does teach about something else, which is the love of it. So what we have here, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all evil. You find any good detective out there that's checking a crime, they're going to say, follow the money. Most of the junk that we're looking at in Washington today and in Atlanta today in politics, if they would just follow the money for real, then about nine out of every ten congressmen would be in jail. I think almost every senator would. And I'm pretty sure half the presidents that we've had for the past 50 years would be in jail as well. Because the love of money, they followed a lot of evil things. But notice the whole context. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So people's answer is, well, just get money out of your life. You better be content with being hungry. Because you got to have something in order to buy food. I'll grow my own. You got to get it started. And you got to have money to get it started. The idea that in order to not love money, that we take it completely out of our lives is impossible. What Paul is teaching us is the same thing that Jesus said, and that is you cannot serve, you cannot love God and mammon. You cannot have two gods in your life. If, well, and I want you to notice that Jesus said cannot. He didn't say it was difficult. He said you can't do it. So what's he saying? If we think that we're holding God in one hand and the love of worldly things in the other, Jesus himself says you've let go of God's hand. You cannot do it. Paul tells Timothy the result of it. They have erred from the faith. And they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Well, what does that look like? Well, what does it look like when you let go of God's hand and you try it alone? That's what he's talking about. 
Paul also says to the Thessalonians, a man that doesn't work shouldn't eat. Okay, everybody memorize that. Because of where our country is going, people that don't work should not eat. I'm not talking about people that cannot work. I know some folks that are physically disabled. Y'all know some folks that are physically disabled, so they couldn't do a job like construction. But they're working on computers. They found things to do to provide for themselves as best they can. Most of the time is this people are just lazy, and they want people to take care of them. Whereas they have forgotten the word of God. God made everything except man. Everything else was made. And he looked at it and it was good. But then God says, there's nobody to tend the garden. So he made man to work. Now, after Adam's transgression, it got downright hard. But man was not created to sit and take a handout from somebody else. Man was created to work. Man was not created to worship a career, though. That's the love of money. When it consumes us and we spend more time with our work than we do with the Lord and with his word and with our families, then we need to get that worked out. That might mean that we don't become the CEO of the corporation. You know what? That's all right. You know why? Because we can be content not being the CEO. Anybody ever got close to some of those fellows that run the big businesses and that claim to be Christian, but they're the most nervous and unsettled people you've ever met in your life? Now, there's, there's some wicked folks that run some things, and they might be perfectly happy ignoring all that, but I cannot see how a born-again child of God whose spirit is in him that longs for the word of God is not vexing his very soul like righteous Lot when he's away from the Lord and his people. So the love of money is the root of all evil. Jesus taught that plainly. This one's a bit more serious. Everything happens for a reason. Be very very careful in treading this ground. Let me start off by saying that yes, sometimes God is working and we don't know it. And sometimes God is not working and we say he is. That's very, very dangerous ground. But before we go to the word of God, I can solve this one with a meme. Saw it just the other day. Everything happens for a reason. Yes. Sometimes the reason is you're stupid and make bad decisions. Most of the time, the bad things that happen to us are for that reason, aren't they? We have made a bad decision. By the way, that's from that's Bryce Lawrence's translation of, of James. James says that man is led away of his own lust and sins. It's our decisions. Contemporary Christianity, there is a movement that sounds a lot like grace. And there are groups that will teach election, predestination, very close to the way we teach it out of the Bible. But there is a strain in there that starts trying to point out everything that God is doing and that they have the authority to say how God is working. And they will say that even the sin in our lives, God is working it out for some good. God is not the author of sin. God does not use sin. There are two contemporary Christian songs that are on the airwaves. One of them misquotes Isaiah chapter 61, if you'll turn over there. This one really upsets me. Isaiah 61 is the prophecy of Jesus standing in the temple and standing in the, tower, in, in the, the synagogue and stating, I'm here. 
The Messiah is here. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Ah. Notice the dichotomy that Isaiah is putting here. He's saying there's a bad condition, and God is taking you out of that bad condition. There is something evil, and God is putting good. He doesn't use the prison. He releases you from the prison. He doesn't use the binding. He breaks the binding. He doesn't use the brokenhearted. He proclaims liberty to the brokenhearted. You see the opposite? Not the using of things. The opposite is what Jesus came to do. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. The end thing here is glorifying God in Christ Jesus. That's the point of this passage. There's a contemporary Christian song out there that says, they quote this, and they make it first person God speaking, I'm making beauty with these ashes. That ain't in there. That's not what it says. He says, I give unto them beauty for ashes. I am taking away the destruction and the filth and the shame and I'm making you brand new in Christ. There is nothing about our old nature that God needs in order to make us glorious in Christ. As a matter of fact, everything in our old nature is what Christ put away to make us glorious in his nature. That's what this text means. That's what this text means. Now, does God sometimes overrule the actions of men? Yes, but that's not what this text is teaching. This text is teaching this is the condition of man without God. But when Christ comes on the scene, the worst is taken away. And the new is put there. It's not that the worst is modified. It's that the worst is taken away. The oil of joy for mourning? The oil of gladness poured upon their heads. Okay, this, this is symbolic of something that they, that they did in the Old Testament about God's anointing his children and blessing them with his presence. The oil of gladness poured upon their heads. If God used our tears in order to bring that joy into our lives, then when this is taught, there would be a collection of tears, it's mingled with the oil, and then placed on your head. That's not what happens. We cry. He wipes away tears and pours the oil of gladness on us. You see that? Let's not say, well, God will make something good out of my sin. Folks, treading on some dangerous ground. Well, so Brother Bryce, all things work together. That means everything that I do works together for good. Really? Turn with me over to that one, Romans chapter 8. All things work together. This is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. This is used in conjunction with Isaiah 61 to say that everything that happens happens for a reason and and God uh, uses it for his ultimate glory. Jonah's been teaching us out of the book of Daniel. Is there any statement in there 
where God used Daniel, uh, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar's disobedience for his ultimate glory? Or did he kick him out into the wilderness until he got his head straight? That would have been a perfect place to show us God using evil to bring good, wouldn't it? But he didn't do it. All things work together. I don't speak Greek. But this one, I can understand. The phrase work together comes from a single Greek word. You're going you're gonna to recognize the English word out of this very quick. Soon ergo. Anybody ever heard of synergy? When you work together with somebody to produce something more? In synergy, that means you both have a common goal. You're doing your part of the work. Another person's doing their part of the work. And you get to the goal. That's working together. Now, let's talk about our sin. What about your sin or mine glorifies God? What part of it? None of it. And so if the goal is here and we're sinning, we're going this way. We're moving away from the glory of God when we sin. What has Christ done that doesn't glorify God? Nothing. So Christ is moving toward God. We're doing what? Moving away from God. Does that sound like we're working together? Let me make it a little bit easier to understand. The other day at work, we had to pick up a gravestone. It weighed about 280 pounds. One of the heaviest things I ever picked up in my life. Me and the fellow that were picking it up, I grabbed one side and he grabbed the other. And we lifted it. Why? Because both of us were trying to get it in the back of a pickup. Now, if I had picked up my side and he had grabbed his side and pushed down, were we working together or were we working against one another? Words mean something, don't they? In working together, it is toward the same goal. Our sin never works toward the glory of God. It works contrary to the glory of God. And there's none righteous, no, not one. But everything that Christ does, does move toward the glory of God. So this has to mean something else. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. This is misapplied in saying bad things happen to you, but it's working out for your good. No. Bad things happen to people. We talked about it in prayer requests this morning. How is cancer working toward your good? All cancer is trying to do is the devil's work, which is to kill you. But Jesus Christ died so that the body wouldn't stay dead. One is working to take you away from the Lord in life. The other is working toward the Lord. Murder, rape, you name it. All of these foolish ideas that it's all going to turn out good in the end. Well, the good that turns out in the end is those that are not the Lord's are burned in the lake of fire with the devil that's causing all of it. Or that's promoting all of it. But to say that all, it'll be okay in the end in your life. I have worked with too many folks that have had those things happen to them. There is no good that has come out of it at all. God blesses, yes. But did God need that horrible thing to happen to you in order to bless you? He didn't need it. It's not working you good. God may overrule it. God may squash it. But here's the deal, folks. Read the rest. The next sentence starts with the word for. That means he's going to explain what he just said. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did what? For no, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Ha-ha! <laughs> Remember what I said? 
Our sin's doing what? The goal is to glorify God. That's this, this, this light right up here. Our sin is running as fast as it can away from that. In this list of all the things that are working together for our good, what are we doing? Nothing. God is working. God foreknows. God predestinates. God conforms. God calls. God justifies. And God glorifies. Those things, all of those things are working together for our good. That's comforting. That's comforting because there's a ton of these things out here in the world that are working against me and are working against God. But if God's at work within himself and in his actions, then we know this. Verse 38, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is Paul so persuaded? Because God foreknew. Because God predestinated. Because God called. Because God justified. Because God glorified. Paul says, I'm persuaded the world will never win. Even if I keep messing up, right in between there it says, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. You see that? Why is Paul so persuaded? Was it because of his personal faith? No. He was fully persuaded because God was at work toward his glory. Go back and read the Ephesian letter. It's got predestinate in there, doesn't it? It's got adoption in there. It's got um, uh, 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 election. Got justification. And in all of those statements in Ephesians chapter 1, it's to the praise of the glory of his grace. Not us working with him, but him working alone to save those that were working away from him. Everything happens for a reason. We live in a sin-cursed earth. But I hope what I've tried to show you just the past few moments will show you that nothing that happens out here in this world can thwart what God has said is going to happen. If he chose you, that means he loved you. And if that's there, he's going to call you. And if he's called you, he's going to justify you. And if he's justified you, He's going to glorify you. Nothing can separate us from that love. I like how Brother Marty put it at Moriah last Saturday night. We make the statement, once saved, always saved. He said, here's a better one. Once loved, always loved. I like that. How about God won't give you more than you can handle? That's perhaps the biggest lie that I've ever heard. And oh, by the way, if somebody is going through sore distress and they don't know what to do and you tell them God's not going to give you more than you can handle, all you did was pour oil onto the fire. You didn't help them at all. That's not in there. Not anywhere close. The closest thing that I could possibly find is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Turn with me over there. Notice, are you noticing that these things kind of all go together? I, I tried to set this up for you to trust what the Word of God says with uh, everything in moderation. I can do all things through Christ with strength. The money is the root of all evil. Everything happens for a reason. I'm starting to help you apply trusting the Word of God on the more simple things so that when it comes down to this serious stuff, God won't give you more than you can handle. That you'll listen to the word of God too. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Actually, let's go up to verse 12 because this is the key. So 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth 
take heed lest he fall. That kind of sounds like don't get puffed up in yourself to think that you're handling things and the Lord's not helping you. That was Nebuchadnezzar's problem, wasn't it? He says, I, I did this. I established this kingdom. God says, really? Okay, here you go. Go eat some grass. That's what Paul was warning right here, is having that idea that you took care of it yourself. What's the context? The question is, God won't give you more than you can handle. Well, let's start off with this statement. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Now, most people don't get past the word temptation and its smaller definition. A smaller definition of temptation is there is a sin out there that tempts you to partake in it. And when that temptation comes, God gives you a way to avoid that temptation. Turn and go away. Or when it comes into your mind, read the word of God. Or when people are saying evil things, you say good things. That is a correct interpretation of this, but it's the small one. Temptation in the Bible is often the same as trial and often the same as tribulation, trouble, bad things. And so there is no bad thing that's happening to you. This is, this is the first wake-up call that most people need to realize. Everybody thinks their case is different. Nobody's ever suffered as bad as I have. Paul says, what's happening to you has happened to other people. It's common to men because you live in a sin-cursed earth. The devil hates all people, so he attacks all people. And so there are things that happen. Loved ones get sick. We get sick. Loved ones are harmed by things out in the world. Dangers are all around us. But notice the first thing that Paul says to this. He says, first of all, if you think you're standing on your own, you're going to fall. That's really what's talking about in that previous verse. And so when trouble comes, big definition of trouble, anything that's bad out in this world, notice the next phrase, but God is faithful. He said, if you think you're standing alone, you're not trusting God. When trouble comes, you're going to fall under it. It's going to tear you up. You're going to give in to that sin, or you're going to become miserable and without hope. But if you remember that God is faithful, and he will not suffer you to be tempted above that which ye are able, able to what? Turn and flee? Sometimes we can, yes. But what if it has come upon us and the doctors can't help? He make a way for us to escape. You mean we can escape the cancer? No. But we can escape the spiritual damage that happens when we give up hope. Because notice what he says. That ye may be able to what? Get out of it? No, he says bear it. That's the key word, folks. There are some things that are going to come upon us in our lives that are not going to go away. And we have a choice. We can be arrogant and say, I'm going to take care of this, and we're going to fall. We're going to move into despair. We're going to lose hope. But if we remember that God is faithful and Jesus himself said, Lo, I am with you all the way, even unto the end of the earth. The way of escape is God. God's not going to suffer things to come into your life bigger than him. But folks, if we forget about him, then it's a burden we cannot bear and we will fall. We will give in. We will suffer. But if we're trusting in him, well, okay, 
Bible's not going to teach a principle without example. Job. God said Job's righteous more than any other man. Job had illness come upon him. And through that trial, was he escaping it? The boils were still there. Children were still dead. But he did not speak against God, nor sin with his tongue. Didn't do everything exactly right. We know that because when God came down and did visit him, he was righteous in his own eyes. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't know if they were going to be delivered. They said, God is able to deliver us from this fire, but we don't know if he's going to do it, but we know he's going to deliver us from you. They were bearing it. They were free of the fear and the anguish and the spiritual side of the battle because that's the key. Because remember, don't forget this. Jesus Christ died for your body. They might obliterate it completely, but when he comes back, he's going to put it back together. So let's deal with the mind and the heart that's happening right now. That's what we're dealing with. That's what faith is for. Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, had a thorn in his flesh, a thorn from Satan to buffet him, that he be not what? Prideful. Huh. Dealing with pride here, Paul uses himself as an example. And so he prayed three times for God to remove it. And let us not forget, God didn't say no. What did he say? My grace is sufficient for thee. You can bear it, Paul, because I'm bearing it. I am there with you. So when we see that God's not going to give us more than we can handle, you know what? There's not a single thing that you can handle by yourself. But there is nothing in this world that God can't handle. And so if those things come in our lives and we turn to the Lord, He helps us to bear it. That's the key. Because if we live our lives thinking God's not going to let something come into my life that I can't handle, you're actually going to be running around almost like Chicken Little, afraid of what's around the corner. But if you're trusting the Lord, then it doesn't matter what's around the corner because you know the Lord's with you and you're with the Lord. That's something you can rest on, isn't it? The last one we'll close out with, and this one y'all can probably fill in as many verses as I have on my mind. God helps those who help themselves. That ain't in there. There was actually a guy named Sidney that coined that the first time, but the reason we know it is because of a man named Benjamin Franklin and poor Richard's almanac. That's where it came into English vernacular. God helps those who help themselves. Sounds like a good slogan for a commercial, doesn't it? That's been the slogan of most messed up Christian theology, though. God helps those who help themselves. There is none righteous. How are you helping yourself if you're not righteous? There's none that seeketh after God. Romans chapter 3 is filled with who we are and what we are without Jesus Christ. God helps those who help themselves. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. If we're ungodly, how are we helping ourselves? Now, there is a statement in James that says, draw nigh unto God and he'll draw nigh unto thee. But that ain't talking about your eternal salvation. That's talking about a disobedient child of God who has turned away from the Lord that when he turns back, it's just like the parable of the prodigal son. The father's been looking for you all along. Or, let me rephrase that. Looking at you all along. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2. Let's close this out. Y'all know why I got here. I hope y'all see the point of what I was trying to do this morning. I want you to trust in the word of God. On the little things. And if you trust it on the little things... Then when the big problems of life come up, which ah, salvation, that's one of them, you'll trust him. Ephesians chapter 2 begins this way, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. That means no life. 
Dead does not mean a little spark of life and we fan the flame. Dead means dead. In our nature that we inherited from Adam, if God does not act upon us, we remain dead in sins. Unable to move toward God. Go back to Romans chapter 3. There's none righteous. Y'all finish it. No, not one. This is everybody. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation. Oh, Paul says it. We all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as other. Children of wrath meaning we deserve wrath. If you think you deserve salvation, you've got a lot of scriptures to deal with. That's one of them. In our nature, without God, we deserve his wrath. But God, whoo, one of the best phrases in the Bible. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. Remember the glory of God right up here. Those first three verses, he's describing us going in the exact opposite direction. And then, but God. Who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he wooed us? He tried to help us? No, he just loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Who's working there? It's God. It's God. So rather than God helps those who help themselves, God helps those who can't help themselves. That's why it's called grace. That's why it's called mercy. If you could do it, it's not grace. If you deserve it, it's not mercy. Let's give God all the glory. There's about 20 or 30 more that y'all could probably think of. Strange things that we say, and sometimes we think it's in the Bible. Let's check. Let's make sure. And if it is in the Bible, let's make sure we're using it the right way. Because just quoting the scripture is not good enough. Because that's what the devil did. Every time he tempts, he tempts with the word of God, misapplying it, taking it out of context, trying to thwart this glory of God. Let's don't act like him. Let's live our lives in that kind of peace that the same God that says, act like Christ all the time, let your moderation be known to all men. That same God says, for by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You couldn't do anything good. You couldn't think anything good until you were created again. Let's give God all the glory for all things, especially our salvation that's found in Christ and in Christ alone. May the Lord bless you all with my prayer.